Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. My name is Patrick. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Sano Genetics. I'm here today with a really exciting guest. It's Dr. Yan Shao from the Sanger Institute uh, just outside of Cambridge. And I've actually known Dr. Shao for a while because we did our PhDs at the same place and actually rode the same bus uh, into work some days. So uh, I'm excited to have him on the show because he's recently published a very cool new paper that looks at the differences in the gut microbiome between newborn babies based on their delivery method, whether it's vaginal or C-section, as well as other uh, parameters like whether they've taken antibiotics. Uh, and we also get a huge number of requests for people on the microbiome. I think it's probably the most requested topic area. So we're going to cover not just the new paper, but also uh, a lot of interesting ground around differences in microbiome around the world and associations with disease. So very excited to have you on the show. Thanks for taking the time, Ian. Thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. Great. Do you mind just giving us a quick intro to your uh, new research paper, what, what you guys looked at, and, and, uh, and how you ran the study? Yeah, so in this new paper, we um, conducted the largest study of the human gut microbiota in very early life, and we uh, recruited and sampled newborn babies in the UK of their microbiota via stool samples and performed shotgun managed genomic sequencing um, in the first month of life. Um, longitudinally and also for some of them we follow up the microbiota later life. We found that um, the among all the clinical covariates we collected, the mode of birth has the biggest impact on the, on the microbiota. And specifically the babies who are born by CCNS sections have a very low load of commensal bacteria, which is house promoting bacteria, most of which are transmitted from their mothers. Whereas um, on the other hand, by missing that, they acquire a lot of bacteria from the hospital environment, which carry a lot of AMR, which is antimicrobial resistance and virulence genes. And um, the, we observe the differences throughout the first month, of, first month of life and also at their infancy period. And we believe that by having this disturbed microbiota uh, pattern, these C-section babies, uh, at a risk of uh, future infections by carrying high load of pathogens. Right. So, so to kind of recap the study, you looked at yeah. 600 uh, infants across these three different hospitals, yeah. and you found differences in bacteria straight away based yeah. on the uh, delivery method, antibiotics. And how long does it take for, for the bacteria to go from um, slightly different at the vaginal and C-section stage to, to kind of recover to what you'd, what you'd expect if they were all delivered the same way. Yeah, so you're right that um, we've seen the, the, the biggest difference in the earliest time point at day four in our study, and we consistently measure that significant uh, differences, which is declining over time as you sort of um, enter the infancy period, which we also follow right. up their, 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 their microbiota at nine, around nine months of age. Uh, but we still that uh, differences is statistically significant, um, which is uh, consistent with uh, some of the previous findings. Um, but it does show that in the earlier period is the birth node that is the most important. So is it um, is it too soon to tell, or 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 do you know if these are likely to have other impacts later in life. Are you, are you able to follow these families for the next 5, 10, 15 years to see if this disruption early in infancy has any, any long-term effects? Yeah, um, so that's a very good question. Um, so we don't know 
the uh, we don't have information that there's um, house differences. At least we know information we have. There's no house differences in these babies born by C-section or vaginal delivery, despite their huge differences in microbiota. Whereas the hypothesis that we want to um, follow by following that follow following them in the later life in say five years of age, this is where the normally the immune diseases develop, such as asthma and type 1 diabetes. Um, that's we want to know whether the early life microbiota signature during the first month of life, which is a critical period of development for immune system as well. So what's the impact of the lack of commensal health-promoting bacteria uh, transmitted from mothers in the C-section babies? What's the impact for them? Would they actually predispose them to developing asthma in the later life? Or would right. the presence of pathogens in, their, in these babies cause infections because they remain at risk because as long as they persist in the gut microbiota, they can cause infections. Right. So can, can, we, um, can you tell me a little bit more about microbiome science in general? How, how, long, how large are studies in general? I think for the kind of study you're doing, 600 people is a lot. But as you mentioned before, there are other studies going on in adults. How, how, how are these studies typically designed and how do, you, how do you collect samples? How do you analyze it? What are people typically looking for when they do them? Yeah, um, so in this study, we studied um, 600 healthy babies in the UK, which is the largest of this type uh, in the microbiome in terms of early life. Whereas in the adults, we're looking at the largest sample uh, studies today, single study today, is about 1,000 individuals. Right. So it's still big in the sense that a lot of samples will be collected, but it also, compared to human genetic studies, we're looking at over 1 million people right. at some point is, is probably still at very infancy period. It's because that um, the, we study microbiome by taking the stool samples, which might not be that easy to collect, convincing people to give, provide a stool sample to, for us to, to perform sequencing. Also, the cost of, um, say, performing um, shock metagenomic sequencing enrollment is still relatively high compared to doing genotyping in human blood. Um, and also, there are sometimes the microbiome, our microbiome is much more dynamic. So it's, right. it's not stable compared to human genome, where um, sometimes we need to take multiple samples. As in case in our study, we took longitudinal samplings of individual, which show that by taking them, say, Monday and Friday, the microbiome could differ a lot in babies. Right. Whereas in adults, maybe there's a small fluctuations. Right. So there are a lot of factors that are um, uh, important to be considered uh, in designing a human microbiome study. Because the samples depend on how it's being collected, how it's being stored, how do you extract the DNA, how do you store DNA, which sequencing technology you use, all these um, technical factors could contribute right. to the result. Yeah. So you, you mentioned shotgun metagenomic sequencing. That yeah. is that the kind of state of the art right now? Because there's an older version yeah. that's been used in other. Do you mind just explaining the difference yeah. between those two technologies? So, um, so the shotgun metagenomics is um, similar to um, we you, we sequence the entire DNA of the community. So that's include not just bacteria, but also say, if they're human DNA as well, we could sequence right. it as well. And also fungi, archaea, viruses, 
Whereas the previous, in the earlier phase of the human microbiome studies, um, low studies use what we call the marker gene phase, which is based on a sickness or, or ribosomal RNA marker genes. So this is a conserved um, gene in all bacteria present in all uh, prokaryotes, so archaea and archaea. So by sequencing that markers, you can detect what the, uh, the bacteria likely is. It's like you perform which region of a chromosome, which chromosome right. that uh, in a human genome that gene is present. So it's limited by re resolution, but it's much cheaper and much easier to study. But it provides you less information in terms of how accurate, because bacteria does uh, different bacteria within one species could vary. Right by their function. So um, right now, I think more most studies microbiome are moving towards using chocolate genomics, which you can also find out new, completely novel bacteria, which right. um, actually is, we're still looking at the microbiome studies, very few bacteria. We can culture and actually understand what are they, so. Right, so there's a whole ecosystem in there. Yeah. And if you just do the, the, the kind of cheap and simple way, you don't know what you're missing, right? Yeah. So with shotgun managenomics, for example, we now, by analyzing the entire human genomic data sets, we estimate that actually it's about 70% of bacteria species we have never studied in a lab before. So wow. they only exist in sequences, but we haven't been able to culture it, which is another, another limitation of microbiome studies that right. we don't know what bacteria is. We cannot culture it in the lab. How much would it cost to do a single bacterial, if you want to do a thousand bacterial metagenome sequences, about how much does it cost per sample? Um, so it depends on the technology and multiplexing, obviously. Um, so it really depends. Um, a Sanger, it can be, the sequencing center, it can be cheaper, but I don't think for, if you are in from a, so university labs it right. can be because after talking to people in conferences and community, it can be really do, different. Yeah, they they sort of say that the reason they could not do chocolate genomics is limited by the sequencing cost. Right. So, but at a, at a yeah. big at a kind of a large scale institution, would it would it be hundreds of dollars or thousands or tens? I would say hundred dollars is yeah. yeah probably looking at uh, not shallow sequencing depth, but like. Uh, normal normal depth yeah. right so for us for a study like yours to do 600 healthy babies multiple time points is yeah. is it's expensive right so it's a yeah. you, you know you have to get you have to have a research grant to do that kind of work yeah i guess that's why that it is a uh, quite also sequencing is one aspect i also love i think effort and uh, funding yeah. also spend on like collecting and recruiting patients and recording all the factors we use so i think that's a uh, sometimes with large cohort studies i'm sure not just a microbiome for human gene genetic studies it's a lot of hard work being done actually before the samples actually yep. impacted. yeah yeah and, and you mentioned earlier that one of the challenges in the microbiome compared to gen human genetics for example is the constantly changing environment and different conditions that affect yeah. that how how do you handle that in in these kind of studies do you have to collect all sorts of other information. How do you think about the difference between cause and effect? Um, so, yeah, so basically we try to collect and make sure all the sum, we, you know, as, as much metadata um, as possible and make sure that um, 
did have metadata clean. I'm sure it is similar with other uh, human genetics um, cohorts. Um, so in most microbiome studies so far, including us, uh, we're looking at the um, association of factors with microbiome signatures. And so we get correlation of, say, factors and like, C-section and increased load of pathogen carriage. But still, to be able to demonstrate causations, we need to go to the lab to demonstrate that right. by saying, using animal models, can we replicate the, 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 the findings? Um, but that's, as I mentioned earlier, limit, limitation is that we cannot culture the bacteria. So right. we don't even have uh, some of the service. But the thing was, in our, in our, data, in our study, uh, we'll be able to validate our sequencing uh, based um, results by culturing the bacteria. So we, we make sure that what we see the pathogens carriage in babies is real, and they do carry a lot of air margins. Right. Um, so that's one way sort of trying to go further than sequencing detection, trying to say, can we validate this in the lab? And then the next step as trying to do now is trying to see by using animal models, can we establish causation, say, do carriage or the missing of some commensal bacteria linked to some new deficient phenotypes. Yeah. Right. So there's uh, a lot of people are interested in how the microbiome relates to disease risk. And, and do you have any, you know, uh, kind of broad overview? We hear often about immune conditions, um, bowel conditions like IBD, Crohn's colitis, um, but also autism is one that comes up frequently where people ask, is the microbiome associated? Do you, what's the current state? Uh, do we know? Do we not know? Is, is it ongoing? Yeah. So as you said, we, microbiome has been linked to almost all the diseases you can think of in right. human. Um, and recently also, I think general of interest is linked to cancer. So um, Sometimes, many cases, we find association with microbiota differences and sometimes particular type of bacteria. But in many cases, the studies cannot replicate or confirm each other. So they're reporting different right. microbiota markers. But that could also, um, that could be uh, sort of indicating that there's microbiome differences across populations. So what the disease associated microbiome markers could be varied. Uh, across, say, U.S. population or Asian population right. or the African population. So um, I think at the moment, most microbiome studies are statistically underpowered. Um, we are still at the stage of, say, looking at the p-value. Is something a significant link to a you know, case control study or not? Um, the many the markers still, at the moment, none of the, 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 the diseases being associated with microbiome cannot establish, establish causations. Um, right. I think there's much more um, work to be done in the fields, much more, we need to sample more um, microbiome and in, also in particular in different populations to compare what is actually, firstly, I guess also depends on can we define the healthy microbiome, which it seems to me that there isn't, we don't have a consensus of what exactly is healthy microbiome at the moment. Right, right. Because it varies depending on diet, for example, right? You were mentioning bef before we um, yeah. started recording a couple of interesting examples based on the work you're doing now. How does diet affect it or, or even geographical location? Yeah, so diet is really important in terms of the adult studies. We're looking at there's a striking difference in, say, high fiber. So fiber right. is an important um, component in terms of bacteria like microbiota are specialized in digesting fiber and providing that to the human metabolic system. 
Um, so there's a striking difference across population in terms of high fiber diets, low fiber diets, or high carb diets. Um, so that's sort of, we know that a strong selection of diets in adults. In case of babies, uh, we know that um, in the early life, there's a main diet difference to this, whether you are being breastfed or not. So some babies are being exclusively breastfed during the first year of life. Some are only being breastfed for one month or completely not breastfed right. because the mothers have different uh, conditions. Um, but that has a strong impact in reaching the bacteria in the baby's guts. As I said earlier, the beta bacterium is an important digester of human breast milk. And the, this, also when we know that from literature is that when you stop breast milking, also can shape when your microbiota is mature or not. Right. So diets definitely is a consistently the most important um, uh, factor in terms of shaping microbiota. How about this, uh, this study you mentioned earlier of they looked at recent immigrants to the U.S. and and I guess they analyzed their microbiome before or or very soon after they emigrated, and then tracked it as they I, I suppose got got onto the U.S. Um, fast food diet. Where where did that study take place, and and how how did what did they find from that? Um, I think I might be wrong because uh, I think it's a recent study in last year um, that's publishing cell I think from uh, that nice group. I might be wrong, from Minnesota. So basically, um, there's very cool study design in the sense of the, the hypothesis that the changes in diet would change your microbiome. So first you want to control the, the host, basically right. looking at recent immigrants arrived in the US from Vietnam. And so we know that they, they are gonna experience a shift in their diets because what they have been eating for their life before arriving in the US, are very different from what they can get in the US. So they do the longitudinal sampling before and after to right, right after, say, recent immigrants, they sample that and then they follow them, them throughout that uh, first few years in the US. And then they compare the Chinese microbiota. And they also measure the control group in the US, like the US uh, nationals who have been living in the US their whole life. And they find like a very big difference. And as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the high carbs, high fat diets has a change to the microbiota. Yeah. Right, and and I, guess, I suppose that change is probably associated with with many of the chronic diseases that are prevalent in the U.S., for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's likely, and also yeah, and also the other maybe the more prevalent use of antibiotics, more prevalent use of drugs, because we do know right. that the drugs can't say have an impact on specific microbiota bacteria or the whole microbiota. Basically, is that if you are a high antibiotic user, um, you are basically dropping, as Trevor, my supervisor, has like to use an analogy, dropping a bomb to the microbiota, right, completely right. Er eradicate Eradicates. all the all the bacteria, and then all the what's the air mar resistant bacteria can sort of survive. Right, like these, they are always easy to grow, which we see in the C-section bomb path uh, bacteria babies. Yeah. Right, so I guess it sounds like the the current understanding, and and I understand why now it's such a complex field is is you've got some steady state microbiome, but it's being influenced by your diet. Yeah. If you have a condition like IBD or you know ulcerative colitis or Crohn's, that's affecting the way your immune system interacts with your gut. Anyways, your personal genetics might influence the way your immune system interacts with your gut where you live, 
impacts this. And so it's constantly changing. And I guess this makes it really difficult to figure out, does the diet change the microbiome, which in turn interacts with the immune system because you've got this complex system that's, it's, it's no one factor essentially that's, that's doing everything, right? It's some, some complex combination of multiple things. Yeah. And, I, and also we don't want to forget about the human genetics role. So um, although we're talking a lot about an environmental role, um, we do know that human genetics play a minor role in the microbiota. So that's um, the studies looking at a very, again, a cool study is basically they're looking at the Israeli populations and they know that where they immigrated from, right. different, different parts of the world. So they have different genetic backgrounds. And then once they settle here, they have sort of relatively controlled diets. So right. then there's a cool study looking at what's the contribution of genetics and contribution by genotyping the, the participants and what's the contribution of diets or other environmental factors. So they showed actually um, genetics only play, I think, around 15% of the, the variation, the only 15% of the variation in microbiota compared to the rest of our environment. And also in like the twin studies, like twins UK studies, so looking at yep. twins, but with different microbiota. And then we can sort of measure what's the inherited microbiota yeah. Has, yeah, shared by twins or they're not shared by twins. So there's some, there are actually very few bacteria you find in the twins' microbiota, even though they share the same growing environments or relatively similar diet. Right. Yeah. Those yeah. studies always fast. So in that case, would the, would the twins be, um, would they be twins that are separated at birth? So they have different environments, but same genetics, for example. Yeah, I got so so in that case they they definitely more similar microbiota compared to the microbiota differences with a random people stranger. Right. But even though you would assume that with uh, as the context of human genetics, they should be uh, very similar, identical. Yeah, but like with microbiota, you found actually quite different and very few bacteria actually shared by between them. But uh, if they are, but that's because they lived not live together right. anymore. Uh, but in case of, we know, like in family studies, you share more microbiota with who you live with, or that could be a family with a partner, or it could be with you know, student dormitories and universities. You right. probably share the same microbiota. Fascinating. You share the kitchen, you, you sometimes share the, the same culture, you same the, right. yeah, same the, the water um, bottles, glasses. Right. Yeah, so because microbiota can spread between people. And what we know so far before is that the bacteria are probably associated with pathogens, infections, but actually majority bacteria and the thousands of species, the trillions of bacteria strains found in our guts, they are mostly commensal. They are sometimes related to promoting, associated with promoting health. So by spreading microbiota, you are also, uh, we, use, we believe that spread health as well. Right. Yeah, so that's kind of like, very, 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 very interesting field. Yeah, I mean, we tend to think we tend to think of them. I feel like this perception is changing, but we tend to think of bacteria as the bad guys. But actually, the, probably yeah. the the vast majority of them are living symbiotically with us and and doing good things like digesting breast milk and helping break yeah. down food and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's fascinating. So where where do just this week the direct consumer company U Biome, who was selling at home microbiome mm. tests declared mm. bankruptcy because I think they, they had some issues with, they had some legal issues where they were had bad billing practices. But I think also maybe it was a little early or, or premature for this kind of 
analysis for a consumer. Do you have any thoughts on how, how does direct-to-consumer testing and research, what can someone learn from doing this at home? Is it, is it kind of a primarily a curiosity at this point, or are there some areas where actually if you committed to paying a hundred pounds a month to do a microbiome test, you might, uh, you might learn something. I see you laughing and smiling. I know yeah, it's a hard, so, it's a hard question. <laughs> yeah. So I guess this come back to the point that how developing potential diagnostics are in the microbiome field, but I, uh, again, microbiome is dynamic. It can yeah. change. So is it say, let's say we have a test for microbiome and this much better resolution than what's currently offered by or used to be offered by Ubiome at 16S or basically give you a very high level overview of microbiome. So let's say we have best test, but then even though does it mean that that test is your microbiome? Does it mean that microbiome change a lot and you need to do microbiome tests every day or even by during the day, probably you factor as well. Um, so probably I don't think there's a current like framework in terms of right. how do we go about from microbiome. It, in terms of establishing a biomarker, because we still lack of a lot of fundamental understanding of the, the, the causal effect between microbiome to and main disease. We, we roughly know, say, uh, having a healthy, high fiber diet probably promotes good bacteria in your gut, but we don't know whether that's gonna prevent you from getting any disease or not. Right. Um, I think right now is. I wouldn't discourage people to taking it. It's for it's for participating in scientific research or sort of curiosity, scientific curiosity, understanding what my microbiome, yep. microbiome is. But um, I wouldn't rely on that to give any sort of diagnostic or prediction of any disease outcome at the moment because we're still very far away from reaching that point. I guess that also echoes with the human genetics. Yeah, exactly. I think I think that's that is good advice. I was exactly going to say that that in human genetics in general there are some cases where it might tell you something very useful that you don't know, but the vast majority of those cases are still in the clinic. It's, it's coming from doctors, not, not in, you know, but again, people who are interested in this and, and want to contribute to research, like you say, and, um, you know, and, and maybe, maybe learn something by actually being able to have the data themselves and play around with it, then it totally makes sense. I, I it's amazing to think about that though someday we'll have a I'm sure someone will invent a device that will allow us to constantly monitor the microbiome in combination with activity and diet and information about our genetics that could help unpick this very complex picture. Yeah, actually there's a recent um, setup on developing using toilets to measure right. micro, sampling microbiome. That makes and total sense. I think that's gonna be the future in terms of like, it's gonna be much easier to collect samples and in terms of direct to analysis and reports. I think also in like say the developing countries where it's not right. that easy to acquire like two sample and to like put in a tube and strip it to in, in dry eyes, those types of very um, difficult conditions. I think yeah. it's gonna be also, this also using how can we potential of using microbiome to um, as a surveillance of say pathogen carriage in the guts in right. say, epidemic areas in terms of the Carriage because a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of um, gastrointestinal infections, um, like cholera and E. coli infections, uh, something like that. They generally we by sampling healthy people, we found that actually they are presently healthy people as well. It's just that right. they're not causing diseases. So we can 
potentially use that to sort of monitor the presence of the high risk uh, bacterial strains yep. like cholera or salmonella in the human gut, and can we uh, probably inform the infection prevention strategies? Yeah, that's fascinating. It's a yeah, it could be an, an early warning system of some sort, right? Where you, you like you say, you pick it yeah. up at low levels in healthy people yeah. and and can yeah. flag it up as as increasing in this area, for example. Yeah, or can we? inform say the antibiotics usage like right. if you have if the person carries a high load of amr carrying bacteria does it mean that it might enrich your uh amr load in the gut microbiome because that can transfer amr genes can transfer between healthy right. bacteria and pathogen bacteria so yeah this the issue of antimicrobial resistance is that is it getting better or is it getting worse i i know for the last five years or so it has been near the top of a lot of like the World Health Organization's agenda. Is it is it getting better, or is it um, or is that kind of are we headed for a big big mess when it comes to antibiotic resistance? I certainly think that there is that trend in terms of um, that AMR is becoming a major issue in public health. But I think by understanding more and more about microbiota, we even the healthy microbiota carry air margins. The key question right. is that, um, are we running out of antibiotics? Basically, right. the, this lack of new antibiotics that can kill the bacteria with air margins. Because what we have so far, all, more and more bacteria are resistant to the last line antibiotics, which means that a patient got infected, all the antibiotics available right. cannot kill the bacteria. That's the major issue now because they develop resistance. There's a lack of investments in research on the new antibiotics. Because there's always this evolutionary arm race between bacteria and right. say drugs. They can always they always human can always develop new antibiotics, but the speed is not as far as bacteria can can right. um, can, can develop bacteria. resistance yeah. to it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So if any grant funders out there listening, this should put this, I know the Wellcome Trust, this is pretty yeah, high well, near the top of their list, right? Yeah, because there's lack of interest from the um, pharmaceutical companies because there's less profits. It's normally right. targeting towards developing countries. It's difficult to sell at a higher price or it cannot justify the investment into R&D. So I think this nothing requires more public investments from government or health agencies encouraging more research into new antibiotics. Otherwise, right. we might actually looking at running out of antibiotics that can treat future infections. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so thinking about the, I guess, the future in general and, and the future of the microbiome research, what, what do you think are the most exciting things going forward in the next, say, 10, 10 15 years of what, you know, what we should be working on or what we have to look forward to? Yeah, I think this is, Definitely, as I said earlier, it's a very field in infancy that uh, we only know so far because we undersampled, right. undersampled a lot. And mainly what we know so far, microbiome are in the large studies in US, in Europe, and in China. Um, globally, we don't have any information on what's the microbiome of, say, the African population, which is incredibly diverse compared to European, right. Chinese, and American populations. And also, what's the different lifestyle changes in the microbiome? And again, 
um, we're trying to tap into discovering new bacteria in humans. So we only right now working with handful bacteria in the lab in terms of these are common bacteria found in human guts. Whereas in sequence analysis, we found actually majority of bacteria have never been cultured or studied before. So I think the next phase in microbiome research will be trying to understand what are these bacteria doing by first isolating right. them to find them and study more in detail because that could actually fill the gaps in terms of how different microbiota between people can associate with different health and phenotypes. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Like with without being able to culture it or understand what it's doing, then you really are missing that next link because you can observe a relationship or correlation between some yeah. change and how it relates to disease but you, but if you can't prove that cause yeah. then um yeah. you know it, it limits the usefulness doesn't it so it's like you don't have a complete human genome and right right now we realize that we only studying on one chromosome or two chromosome of the entire uh human genome and right. compare the whole whole thing with each other so that's that's the current state of microbiome we we only know so far um and also that's with the Western populations or Chinese populations. Um, we don't know anything about, say, what happens in other countries we haven't sampled. So what, is, what, what we are doing in our group at the moment, we're trying to initiate new collaborations with uh, low middle income countries in Africa, in Asia, and in Australia, um, trying to, to look at those undersampled populations, what's the microbiome differences, and how can we improve our knowledge in understanding the microbiome association with health and diseases. Right. That's amazing. Well, if people want to keep in touch with your work, follow you, read the next exciting paper, where, uh, where can I do that? I know you're on Twitter. Uh, what's your yeah. Twitter handle? Yan Shao with two underscore in between. Okay. Two. Don't forget that second <laughs> underscore. So Y Y A N underscore underscore S H A O. And yeah. um, you're in the Lolly group at the Sanger Institute. So there's more information on the website yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, wonderful. Um, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was amazing. I, I learned a ton. I think uh, I'll have to do some more background reading and, and try to dig into some of these issues. It's uh, my, I'm just, my mind is blown by the complexity of it all the time diet, disease state, healthy state, all of these things are going to impact it, which just makes it really painful to understand what's going on. So I think we all we salute you for your work in, in embracing the difficult challenge that it presents. Okay, thank you. I already enjoyed the discussion. Thank yeah, you. my pleasure.